Hello, and welcome to The Search with Clint and Shahe. Today we dive into Numbers. This fourth book of the Torah is called In the Wilderness by the Hebrews, which better reflects that it documents Israel's post-Sinai wilderness journey. The first ten chapters of Numbers are the final preparations commanded by God to get his people ready for their trip to the promised land. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, for your love is my delight. After a week off, we're excited to be here to begin our survey of the book of Numbers. Now, uh, in spite of its boring-sounding name, the book of Numbers is actually quite a thrilling and exciting and interesting book, being the fourth in the Torah. So we're going to talk through the beginning section of the book of Numbers today as we continue our survey and study through the Torah in an effort to read carefully, to draw out wonderful truths that are revealed by God through Moses, and to grow in our Christian faith, in our love, and our devotion to God. And that's why we're here. We're here to learn, to grow, to appreciate the truths of God all the more each and every day, and to allow the Lord to mold us and shape us into the kind of people he wants us to be. Now, let's start first by talking about the book of Numbers placement within the Torah. The name Numbers, by the way, comes from the Latin Vulgate, which comes from the Greek translation of this book, and the the name Numbers reflects the fact that there are a few censuses within the book, Uh, but the Hebrew name is In the Wilderness, which comes from the very first verse of Numbers chapter 1, and that's because this book in particular documents much of Israel's journey, their famous 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. Now, as the fourth book of the Torah, we think about Numbers and its situation within the five books of Moses. Uh, One thing that we find is that Numbers has a lot of parallels to the book of Exodus, which is the second book. And so these books sit on either side of Leviticus. When we get to Exodus 19, of course, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, and then they stay there for a full year, and that's documented in Exodus 19 through the end of the book, chapter 40, all of the Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. So this huge, giant middle section of the Torah is just about this one year at Sinai. When I was a younger Bible student and I thought about Israel's experience at Sinai, I usually only ever thought about what we read in Exodus. Uh, not realizing how much of Leviticus, all of it, and how much of Numbers documents this one year that Israel spent there uh, encamped around the mountain. So a number of similarities. Of course, we have the Sinai similarities, a lot of wilderness journeys when uh, they crossed the Red Sea and made their way to Sinai. There were some wilderness journeys, and now we're going to have more of those. Both Exodus and Numbers, uh, a record times where God tested the people. There are manna stories in both of these accounts, complaining in both of these books on the part of the people as they made their journeys. There are incidents involving the 70 elders slash judges in both Exodus and Numbers. We have uh, two instances where Moses strikes a rock to draw out water for the people who were complaining of thirst in Exodus and in Numbers. Both books uh, record battles that the Israelites fought. Both books record rebellions 
the Golden Calf Rebellion being the famous one in Exodus, and maybe the most famous rebellion in Numbers is when the people reject God's plan to invade Canaan. Now, we're going to get to that in our next study because that's part of the middle section of the book. But we see here all of these similarities And as I think about the book of Numbers, and I think about Israel's post-Sinai experience as they come off of their one year in the mountain, Clint, one thing that strikes me is that it seems like these people really haven't learned very much, Uh, that uh, you know they keep repeating the same errors and same mistakes that marred their initial sojourn to Sinai and their whole Sinai experience. And now it's like history is repeating itself. It's happening all over again as God tries to work with this people. So sort of as a general introduction to uh, numbers and how it fits within the Torah, what are your thoughts about all that? Well, the points that you've made are extremely helpful for appreciating the book and understanding its, especially its historical continuity with the other portions of the Torah. I think that's very important because of some of the modern critiques that have come against the Torah that depict it as a sort of a patchwork of uh, various literary productions that originally had no connection and no intention, even competition between them, and some later scribe poorly drew it all together to make uh, what we now have. And I think that the very presentation you've just made is a significant challenge to that, that there is tremendous continuity. These are the same people, they're dealing with the same God, and therefore there's a lot of similar events that take place in their lives in this account from what we've read in previous accounts. Uh, One thing that I want to highlight, the only thing really that I would add to what you've said, is how numbers especially, maybe even uh, more than any other book we've considered so far, uh, demonstrates this concept of God's accommodation of human rebellion and uh, rejection of his plan. We've seen accommodation already. We've seen, for instance, that God invited all of Israel to join him on the mountain and to be a kingdom of priests. They rejected that, and so he made an accommodation. He didn't totally give up the priesthood concept, but he confined the priesthood to the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, and he made his arrangement based on uh, those people. And there are other accommodations we've also talked about, even later accommodations like at least a possible interpretation of Ezekiel's temple vision is that that was a temple God would have given the remnant who returned if they had accepted it. But they didn't accept it, and so they got something that was much smaller, the uh, little temple of Zerubbabel. It's not that they didn't get a temple at all, but they got one that was different from what might have been. Well, in some respect, the book of Numbers is just a pivotal a collection of historical events in Israel's life that called for numerous accommodations, including uh, the destruction of the generation that had been brought out of Egypt and the, uh, the transference of what God had promised to them to their children. That's what happens whenever they refuse to go into the land of Canaan. They're going to die in the wilderness, and consequently, the book of Deuteronomy is going to be given. 
Now, Shai and I talked about the question of whether or not there would be a book of Deuteronomy, were there not a book of Numbers? And certainly parts of the book of Deuteronomy, such as Moses' farewell speeches, would have eventually been necessary. Maybe they would appear at the end of the book of Joshua, and the book of Joshua wouldn't be called the book of Joshua. It would be called something else. If everything had gone according to the original plan, and they had gone into Canaan, and that first generation had settled there, and Moses had led the conquest, and maybe there wouldn't have been a battle of Jericho. Maybe they would have gone into empty cities that had been emptied by hornet swarms and <laughs> other things that, that God said was his original intention. Right. Now, when we think about that, we think about how uh, we get these glimpses of what might have been but never was. And something like it does eventually happen because God had a plan, he had a purpose in that plan, and he brought it about even if he had to modify it. But there, there is a sense of what might have been but never was. And I think it's important for us to think about what might have been and to recognize that God did choose to include those promises and even some of those instructions in the canon, though he would later modify them, and the the alpha version, the 1.0 version, <laughs> would never actually be implemented. Right. Uh, but the reason that they would be included in the canon is because they give perhaps an even clearer picture of what God ultimately intended to bring about through the Messiah. Now, those are things we can think through and reason through as we continue to study. That's an interpretive suggestion on my part. But certainly, the book of Numbers is filled with failings and rejections on the part of God's people, uh, even more so than the other books that we have yeah. previously considered. And so this is a major book to uh, watch for God making changes accommodations to his original purpose and see why he did that and and just at least take note of those shifts and slight alterations so that we can uh, incorporate that into our study of the scripture later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, while while the Golden Calf Rebellion is sort of the quintessential example of the early Israelite rebellion, man, it certainly doesn't stop there. And in some ways, it seems to get worse and worse uh, throughout the book of Numbers, with not just Israel in mass, but even their leaders, as we'll talk about here in just a moment, and as we'll see throughout the book. Now, in structuring the book of Numbers, it's a pretty easy book to try to memorize loosely what the structure is. You can, there are two ways to think about it. One is that it begins with a census and it ends with a census. And of course, the reason we have two is because the first census that Moses takes is of the Exodus generation. The second, 40 years later, uh, that first generation dies in the wilderness. Now we have a whole new generation that's come of age. So we have a second census. And those are sort of the, the polar ends of the book. But maybe the easiest way to remember the structure of the book is to think about it in terms of the three geographical locations where all of these events transpire. The first is Sinai. That's where we're going to be parked today. The next is the wilderness of Paran. That's the middle section. Uh, 
38 years of time are spent in the wilderness. And then at the end, we get the plains of Moab, which is that area east of the Jordan River, across from the city of Jericho, where Moses leads an initial invasion of that territory before he delivers the speeches that make up the book of Deuteronomy, dies, Joshua replaces him, and then they cross the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. So these three areas, Sinai, Paran, and Moab, make up the three major sections of the book. And in between the first and second, Sinai and Paran, and the second and third, Paran and Moab, there are little journeying narratives where they're moving from one location to the next. So let's start here with Sinai, where we are at the beginning of the book. And as I said, we start with this census. And uh, in the first two chapters, we get some details about Israel's camp arrangement as well as their marching orders. So the Israelite camp was to be designed with the tabernacle at the center. And then around the tabernacle were four families of Levites. We're going to learn more about them in just a moment. With Aaron's family on the east side of the tabernacle. Of course, that's where the entrance was. So that seems to be the prime location. Surrounding the four Levitical families were four sets of three tribes. Now, the reason we have 12 tribes plus the Levites, 13 tribes in a sense, is, of course, when Joseph, uh, when Jacob was dying, he took Joseph's grandson, Joseph's sons, his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and sort of promoted them to the status of full sons. So that's how we still have 12 tribes plus the Levites. And uh, the tribes are arranged around the tabernacle, with the tabernacle at its core. Now, I'd like to share a chart with you that I've been working on. And as we've been working our way through the first three books of the Bible, now into the fourth, I think what we see here is a continual theme of how people are living in proximity to God. So let's bring up this chart for a minute and work through it. On the left-hand side, we have sort of these three tiers of being within the proximity of God, uh, in God's immediate presence, near God's presence, the third is within view of God's presence, and this is just terminology that I'm working through myself, and then those people who are apart from God's presence. So in Genesis, we saw the Edenic model. This was the ideal that Clint was referring to earlier. This is how it should have been, where the middle of the garden was right in God's presence, then you were near God's presence when you were in the garden. Uh, Eden was within view. When we got to Sinai, we saw it all repeated on the mountain. So God's glory cloud was at the top of the mountain. Moses goes up there. Up the mountain is where Israel's leaders go to be near. They can see into the glory cloud from this perspective. Within view, the people who were encamped around the mountain, they still looked up and saw God up on the mountain, which caused them to be in terror. And then we might say apart from God's presence are all the nations who are not located here at Sinai. We saw all this again in Leviticus with the tabernacle, this tiered system, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can go once a year and not without blood. The holy place where the priests minister right adjacent, right next to God's presence in the most holy place. The courtyard where people who have made themselves clean through ceremony and ritual can come to bring their offerings to worship within view of the glory of God, within view of his presence. And then outside the courtyard, if you're unclean, you don't get to come to the courtyard. You've got to stay on the outside. Well, I think we see this all again in Israel's camp arrangement. The center of the camp, of course, is where the tabernacle is. That's where God is. That's where the priests minister. 
But then right around the tabernacle are the camp of the Levites, where the Levitical families are encamped. And so they're the four sides, north, south, east, and west, right around the tabernacle. They're near God's presence. Well, all of Israel's camp, all 12 tribes, can see God's presence. We're going to learn that when it's time for them to leave Sinai, God's glory cloud or a fire will appear, and they'll all be able to see it. And that, that's how they know it's time to strike up camp and start marching uh, to follow the cloud who's leading us. And we might say that things that happen in the wilderness are those things that are apart from God's presence. So it's this has struck me as we've gone through these first four books. I don't know if we'll find something like this in Deuteronomy. Maybe not, since Deuteronomy is mostly just speeches. Maybe we will find some kind of similarity to all of this. Uh, but what we see here is that the camp itself seems to represent this idea of being in proximity to God with those certain tribes like the Levites who get to be closest to God because God has set them apart for this sacred work. The marching orders, the camp, and then in chapters three and four, we get the census and appointment of the Levites. And we learn that in addition to Aaron's family, who are assigned the role of priests, there are three other families, the family of Korah, Gershon, and Merari. And these families are all assigned their own role and function within the maintenance of the tabernacle. They're told to tend and keep the tabernacle, just like Adam and Eve were told to tend and keep the garden. So Clint, uh, what's some interesting things about these families and their jobs and uh, what God has assigned for them to do? Well, most people probably would think uh, this would be the least interesting part of the Bible, and it, it might be the part that a lot of readers are tempted to skip over. And one of the things we've really wanted to discourage in our study is for people to just skip over material, to recognize that material is included in the canon for a reason. God is telling us a story. And he has included the material that is necessary for the unfolding of that story. Sometimes the necessity, the connection, is very subtle. And of course, if you've ever read a book by a brilliant author, then sometimes you'll be reading the later chapters and you'll think, oh, wow, this connects back to that, that little event that seemed almost out of place earlier in the story. Now, God is a master storyteller as he weaves his story into human history. And uh, there are things that happen in these sections, dry and uh, maybe irrelevant as they seem, that will set the stage for future events that help us understand how to have a relationship with God and how to act out God's will in this world. I'm not going to get into extreme detail. I think that you have... Uh, stated the, the necessary theological point that the Levites are caring for God's tabernacle the way that, is, that Adam and Eve were supposed to care for God's garden. And we have here sort of an, uh, a model of what it means to be God's image bearers, to care for his things and to facilitate his glory, not living for ourselves but for him. But we also uh, are prepared for future lessons on what a sacred task that is and how we should carry it out effectively, especially one of the chief lessons is in order to be God's image bearers successfully, we have to 
live out that responsibility on God's terms. We have to acknowledge that God is the supreme leader, and he orders and arranges the the way his house is to be structured and organized and uh, affairs there are to be conducted. Now, one of the families of the Levites here, for instance, is the family of Kohath, the Kohathites. And one of the things we learn is uh, that they were supposed to carry the furniture in the tabernacle. When the camp was packed up and moved about, they were supposed to carry the furniture. Now, this might seem exceedingly mundane information because this wouldn't even be permanent. Once they settled in the land of Canaan and uh, the tabernacle took up permanent structure, the Kohathites probably just uh, sat around or had to find something else to do because they weren't moving and, and they didn't have to carry it anywhere, especially once we move from the tabernacle system to the temple system where right. it's a, a, a just a building. But later in biblical history, a long time later, there's going to be an incident where the Ark of the Covenant has been displaced, separated from the, the tent of God, and uh, David, King David, wants to remedy that situation, and so he has to move the Ark, one of the pieces of tabernacle furniture, and he does it in these famous Uzzah narratives. I call them narratives because the story of Uzzah is told twice, once in Second Samuel and again in the Chronicles. But uh, in those narratives, if you're familiar with the story, as most of our listeners probably are, the ark was placed on an ox cart. And Uzzah was one of the men driving the ox cart. He reached out to stable the ark because he was afraid it was going to fall off. He touched it and he died. And we learn back in this early section of the Law of Moses that uh, there was a problem there. And David identifies the problem. He says, we should have sought God in the proper order. Mm -hmm. That is, we should have asked God how to handle his things. Because in number seven, verse nine, this very chapter, uh, there's this interesting incident where the people give ox carts to the sons of uh, Levi, to the tribes of, of Levi, the families of Levi. But God says, don't give one to the Kohathites. They don't get an ox cart because they're supposed to carry the holy furniture on their shoulders. This sets the stage for the Uzzah event, which, of course, no one on earth knew was going to happen, but it helps our understanding of the event and exactly what transpired. So I just share this to say that sometimes these seemingly mundane or boring parts of Scripture, they have a purpose, and we need to uh, think about them and process them and try to internalize them as much as possible because they will help us understand the further and fuller revelation of God. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that point very much. It is a, a bizarre incident. You know, King David seems to be uh, full of the, the right motive in wanting to do what he uh, was doing and bringing the ark up to Jerusalem and making that the centralized place where God would be worshipped and eventually building the temple, which his son Solomon would complete. 
Um, and it's after Uzzah dies when he says we need to figure out how to do this correctly. He says, okay, well, let's go get the Levites and ask them. And of course, had he done that the first time, you know, uh, it's, it's obviously uh, Uzzah would not have lost his life and things would have been a much more successful the first go around, which they eventually were on the second try. So uh, very good. So we have the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites, these three Levitical families, which were all tasked with different responsibilities and breaking down the tabernacle and moving it from one location to the next. In chapter 5, we get a few miscellaneous laws. Uh, There's a statute about how to handle unclean persons. Uh, There's a passage about what a husband should do if he suspects that his wife has been unfaithful and committed adultery. He's to bring her before the priest, and there's a whole ceremony involved. I will just throw in an aside. Um, you know, we, we're living in an age where there are a lot of uh, internet theologians, and of course, I produce content for the internet. Clint produces content for the internet. The same maybe someone could say about us. But there are a lot of internet theologians who are not the best Bible students, and they might make a, a statement about something that they see in the Bible that sounds profound, uh, but upon careful reading has you know, no validity to it whatsoever. I've heard people argue that the ceremony that is involved in and de- uh, determining whether or not this woman has been unfaithful to her husband would cause an abortion. She's to drink this potion, and it says the Hebrew is very strange, something like you know her thigh drops and her belly swells, and that the charge that the husband is making that she's become pregnant by another man, and so this would kill the baby, and that's what God had prescribed in this circumstance. Uh, but there's no indication in this chapter, in Numbers 5, that she's become pregnant. And in fact, if she has not been unfaithful, if she has been true to her husband, drinking this concoction will cause nothing, no no harm, nothing will come of her, and it will not, the text says, this is, I think, believe Numbers 5, 28, she will be able to bear children in the future. So it seems more of the case that if she has been unfaithful, drinking this concoction will prevent her from being able to conceive and have children. Of course, in the ancient world and in Israelite culture would have been a a, a terrible curse and the punishment for her uh, infidelity. But there's no evidence in this passage at all that an abortion or the the woman has become pregnant is happening. So I just kind of throw that in as an aside to when you hear claims on the internet about the Bible, make sure you go and read the passage yourself and carefully examine it and think about it. Now, Clint, there's another uh, paragraph in chapter 5 that I'd really like to hear your thoughts about. Sometimes when we think about the old law, we think about it in terms of the ceremonies and rituals that we've been spending a lot of time in back in Leviticus. And if someone commits a sin or a transgression, God says, here's the animal they need to bring to the altar. Here's how they can make that right, make atonement for what they have done. Uh, But in this little section in Numbers 5, God says, if an Israelite has sinned against another Israelite, it's an affront to God. And they need to make a confession for what they've done and make restitution. And I think sometimes we don't think about the idea of confession and making things right with our neighbors who we've wronged 
as being a, an old law principle. That's maybe something we think of in the teachings of Jesus, you know, about uh, don't bring your gift to the altar until you've made things right with your brother and you've been reconciled. Then you can bring your gift to the altar. But this confession statute here seems to run contrary to that way of thinking. Uh, help us through this uh, this passage. So the word confess, um, the English word, carries the idea represented at least by the Hebrew, or excuse me, by the Greek word used in the New Testament, homologia, which literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing, to uh, agree with a proposition that has been laid before you and acknowledge its truth. In the New Testament, we have people being called upon to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is to say the same thing about his identity that the Father has said about him, that the angels have said about him, that the apostles have said about him, and that the community of the faithful has said about him for 2,000 years. We also have a people being called upon to confess their sins. That is to say the same thing that God says about that behavior, to acknowledge that it is indeed sinful. Uh, if you have done something and you say, I haven't done anything wrong, and God says it is wrong, then you're disagreeing with God. You're, you're making God a liar, and the truth is not in you, the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1. And then there is a sense in which confession can mean uh, admitting to having a problem. That's probably what we think of most of the time when we think of somebody confessing to a crime. I admit, yes, the accusation against me is true. I really did do that. We're not just talking about the moral nature of the act, but whether or not it was really a part of my life. And that kind of confession is also mentioned in the New Testament. We confess our faults to one another, and we pray for one another. We admit that we have problems, and we seek uh, counsel and encouragement and mutual support so that we can get better and improve. Now, I did a little bit of research while you were speaking on the Hebrew word, translated confess. Interestingly, it's also the same word for to, to give thanks or to praise. And so it seems to carry the same idea. When you give thanks to God, you are acknowledging that God is the source of something good that has come into your life. When you praise God, you are acknowledging objective realities about the glory of his person. And when you confess sin, you are acknowledging that you in fact did something and that what you did was wrong, that God is correct in condemning this thing. Now, the thing about confession based on what we've just said, is that it always has an obligation attached to it. Mm. If I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then I am thereby obligated to submit myself to him completely. Right. If I agree with God about who he is, then that agreement has uh, consequences. Right. That agreement is, in its own way, an oath of allegiance to God. I mean, if, if uh, you know, in the old days when, when people lived in monarchies, and I guess some people still do, although whether or not they're real monarchies could be debated, but when monarchies were a major thing in the world, when people would look at this, this fellow and say, long live the king, 
they were confessing that he was the king. Right. And embedded in that confession was an oath of allegiance, a recognition. If he's the king, then I have to be loyal to him. I have to be his subject. He's the one who's going to rule over me. Similarly, when you confess sin, there's an obligation embedded in that confession, an obligation of repentance and restitution, if possible. An obligation uh, that your life is going to change, your behavior is going to change now. Sin is not going to uh, have the same relationship to you that it used to because of what you acknowledge about it. You're not just saying, yes, I I acknowledge that God says that's a sin. You're saying God is correct. Right. I agree with God this is a sin. So the presence of confession in the Old Testament does in fact teach that God has always desired internal transformation, not just external rituals. It was not the blood of bulls and goats that took away sin. In in fact, the New Testament writers say the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. What finally has taken away sin is the sacrifice of Messiah. And whose sins will he take away? Those who confess the authority of God and his authority and therefore confess that uh, What God has said is true, and who submit themselves to him in allegiance and loyalty. And that's what we see going on in this chapter. Very helpful. Oh, that's excellent, and appreciate all of that. Uh, Okay, so that's chapter 5, and we need to move on now. We're about halfway through the section here. So in the next chapter, in Numbers 6, we have the introduction of something brand new, something we've not seen at all yet, and it's the Nazarite vow. And now, Clint's going to explain to us what the Nazarites uh, were, what the function of the vow was. I'll just note, of course, that you know there's the most famous Nazarite in the Bible that we learn about is Samson, uh, but it uh, also appears that the prophet Samuel was a Nazarite. It's implied in our text of 1 Samuel, but there's a Dead Sea Scroll version of 1 Samuel that actually has a variant in, uh, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel that specifically says he was to be a Nazarite to the Lord. So it seems that Samson and Samuel, who were contemporaries of, of one another, lived about a generation apart and bridged the gap from the end of the era of the judges into the beginning of the establishment of the monarchy, uh, were, were a couple of Nazarites. Uh, but Clint, what, what is a Nazarite? And what's significant about the vow and, and all the details that are included about it here in this chapter? Well, if I'm correct, and you, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, the word Nazarite basically means devoted or mm-hmm. dedicated. So I, I, the Nazarite vow was a vow of dedication to God. Now, basically, if somebody asked me, what was the Nazarite vow? Why did this thing exist? I would say the Nazarite vow was an opportunity for average Israelites to make extraordinary uh, dedications of their time and gifts and energy to God. It was the Levites who were called into special service to God. It was not the firstborn who opened the womb any longer. 
Numbers tells us, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was the Levites. And so most Israelites, they, they just lived their lives and recognized that God was their king and they brought their tithes and made their sacrifices and so on. But if you wanted to, if you loved God deeply and you wanted to give him extraordinary service, uh, which you knew he was worthy of, you could take a Nazarite vow. Now, what's fascinating is that there are actually four men who are often uh, alleged to have taken the Nazarite vow. Nobody, to my knowledge, disputes Samson. And then, of course, you've mentioned Samuel. There's also the prophet Elijah. Some people, in fact, interpret the statement that he was a hairy man, Mm. not as a reference to him being covered with body hair, but as a reference to the Nazarite vow, which included among its numerous stipulations that you were not to cut your hair for all the days of your vow. And then, of course, the next man is John the Baptist. And there are several reasons why some people think that he was a Nazarite, including the prohibition against drinking wine, one of the, uh, that, that the angel gave, you know, when he was uh, not yet born. Right. One of the uh, stipulations was that Nazarites had to stay away, not just from wine, but from any product of the grapevine, including they couldn't even eat raisins. Uh, they were to stay away from all those things. They weren't to touch a dead body. Uh, they were to do various things that kept them extraordinarily sanctified, extraordinarily holy or clean before the Lord. Now, what's very interesting is Samson basically never did anything he was supposed to do to be a Nazarite. And yet God went ahead and allowed his vow to stand until his hair was cut off. But the story of Samson is worthy of a lot more attention than we have time to give it. So we'll save that for some time in the future when we consider the book of Judges. What's very fascinating is if I'm correct in suggesting that the Nazarite vow gave non-Levites an opportunity for extraordinary service, well, Samuel and John the Baptist were both Levites. Uh, Sometimes people miss that Samuel was because his father is called an Ephraimite, I think it is. But that just means that he was from the territory of Ephraim. When we read Samuel's genealogy, we find that indeed he was a Levite. So I think that uh, the ordinary function of the Nazarite vow was to give non-Levites an opportunity to have a a period of extraordinary divine service, but it could also be used for a Levite to have even more (laughs) extraordinary divine service, which certainly describes the life of Samuel and of John the Baptist, if we're correct in assuming that those men uh, did take the, the Nazarite vow. Another man who is supposed to have taken the vow is the Apostle Paul. We know that in Cancrea, uh, in Acts 18, the Bible says he shaved his head because he had taken a vow. I do not believe that Paul took a Nazarite vow for a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the Nazarite vow would have interfered with his Christian service in pretty significant ways. It would have caused him to do things that he had been teaching Christians not to do. And it would cause him not to do things that he had been teaching Christians to do. Right. For instance, he wouldn't have been able to cut his hair. He had just been at Corinth where he was teaching men to cut their hair and women to let their hair grow long. It would have prevented him from eating the Lord's Supper 
hard to imagine that, especially he'd been at Corinth and he had evidently really ingrained in their minds the necessity of eating the Lord's Supper. But especially the fact that he shaved his head at Cancrea. The Nazarite vow said you were to shave your head at the sanctuary of God and you actually burned your hair as an offering on the altar. So if Paul took the Nazarite vow, he didn't keep it very well. Mm. I think that it's better to say that he took another vow, probably one of his own design. Mm -hmm. Now that brings us to the question, uh, what was the point of vows? And are vows pertinent for Christians today? Well, vows were, all vows were opportunities to give extraordinary devotion to the Lord. Some vows, uh, some vows were made in haste, and they were not very well thought out, and there were stipulations. We didn't go over them, but in the book of Leviticus for what to do if somebody made a vow and then thought, uh-oh, I should not have made this vow. Right. But generally speaking, God, uh, while he didn't command them, God was happy with, with them if they were made well and if they were kept because they showed that people really uh, were committed to God. I think that Paul's vow probably had to do with the suffering he was enduring, and he, he didn't want to continue in the work he was doing, but Jesus appeared and strengthened him and encouraged him to go ahead and keep on doing it. And so he made this commitment to the Lord, and it was a way to help him to uh, strengthen his resolve, to carry out this task that he knew the Lord wanted him to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, obviously, as a Christian, I think we can do like the Apostle Paul did. And uh, if you do that, then, you know, the Nazarite vow doesn't put binding obligations on how you should carry that out and how you should hold yourself accountable and demonstrate that your commitment has been accomplished. The Nazarite vow would, would not be appropriate for Christians, as we've said, for a number of reasons. Uh, the things that it involved, even, even under the old system, called for people to behave in unusual, extraordinary ways that would not have really been appropriate and would have even been shameful outside of the context of this vow. There's just no indication that I see that... Uh, Christians would be expected or allowed or approved to to follow th this exact course. It was a part of the law of Moses. I mean, Christians couldn't keep the Nazareth vow because you couldn't burn your hair on the altar at the temple anyway. And right. That's gone. Right. So there are features of the Nazareth vow that uh, are inaccessible since AD 70 regardless. Many times people will talk about the Nazareth vow in relation to 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul teaches about uh, men and women, that men are to not have a, a covering on their head, and women are to have a covering on their head, and it appears that the covering is long hair, and men are to not have that, and women are to have that. And really, there's no thematic connection between 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, Numbers chapter 6 that I can see. It is not inappropriate, though, to look at linguistic parallels, and that's the way that probably most of our listeners have heard number six addressed. That's not inappropriate. 
that can be very helpful in understanding some of the language used by the Apostle Paul. What you don't want to do is ignore the original contextual meaning of number six. You want to understand what the passage means before you start applying principles that are contained within it or using its language to help shed light on something else. And what the passage means, so far as I can understand, is that especially under the old system, where numerous people were excluded from acts of divine service, if you were so inclined, you could make this vow and you could take on yourself extraordinary responsibilities and a period of devotion to God and you could demonstrate your love to God in that way. It wasn't easy. It was very complicated. And uh, if you messed up, you had to start over <laughs> again right. from what it appears to me. But that was ultimately the purpose and function of this vow. And I think that there are principles here that Christians can learn about when we uh, decide we want to do something special for the Lord. Yeah, I really like that idea that God made this avenue available for people who might not otherwise have an opportunity for special service, that this is a way that God has provided for people who are looking for that special engagement with the work of God. And so he's given them this opportunity. You know, uh, one thing we read about only two times, once in Exodus and once in 1 Samuel, that there's a, a group of women who are ministering at the entrance who, of the tabernacle. And we know almost nothing about what they were doing, but we know they were there and they were helping in some way. And so it seems like there are these provisions that God, yes, has set aside the Levites, as you mentioned, in, in placement of the firstborn, as people who were especially signed to functions involving the work of the tabernacle. But God is looking for all kinds of people to dedicate themselves to his work, and he makes those opportunities available for people who are looking to do that. Very helpful on the Nazareth vow. Thanks, Clint, for that. Uh, at the end of chapter 6 now, we're going to hurry along, we have the famous Aaronic priestly blessing and benediction, where God says uh, to Aaron, when you want to bless the people, here's how you can do it. Here's what you can say. I'm, I'm going to read this passage. It's famous. You probably have sung these words before in a hymn. Uh, this is in Numbers 6, beginning in verse 22. Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. We've talked about the idea of blessing in the Torah going all the way back to Genesis 1 as how God enables people to do that for which they've been created or for which they've been charged, that God is intervening in a way that will help people to accomplish their mission, the mission that he has given them to fulfill on the earth. He blessed the uh, sea creatures and the creatures of the air to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the sea and to fill the land and to fill the air with more of their kind. And so God enables us. And this is how he says to Aaron, Aaron can go and act as that intermediary 
intermediary to bring God's blessings and to pronounce this blessing upon the people. Now, Clint, these are famous words uh, that we sometimes sing or recite. Any thoughts about the Aaronic or the priestly benediction? Yes. In fact, uh, not long ago, I was in a conversation with a, a Christian friend who was struggling with the first chapter of the book of Job and how Satan could come into God's presence because God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil, said the prophet Habakkuk. Similarly, I've had many discussions over the years with people who uh, understood that when Jesus died on the cross, God you know, turned his face away from that, and that's what the earthquake and the darkness and all that stuff was. And Some people even read uh, cosmic metaphysical separation of father and son into that because Jesus had become sin for us and God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. Now you might say, well, what does all that have to do with the priestly benediction? A great deal. You see, the benediction was the Lord make his face to shine on you. The Lord lift his countenance. Basically, the, the whole benediction is I pray that God will look at you. Mm. Well, what, what's the big deal about that? Well, the, in, in Hebrew thinking, for God to look upon you is an idiom of him approving of you, being pleased with you. And when the Bible says the Lord is of purer eyes than to look upon evil, it doesn't mean that he can't see it, that when it happens, he, he shudders and he turns away or closes his eyes. It means that he, he cannot approve of evil. It is, it is beyond him to approve of evil in any form. And so all those other passages can be interpreted in that way and, and understood. The Lord has never approved of the devil's evil deeds. The Lord, uh, you know, it wouldn't be that God had to distance himself from Jesus. And God did approve of what Jesus was doing on the cross. So that, that sort of calls on those folks to rethink their whole line of reasoning, I think. But ultimately, what the benediction is, is may the Lord be be pleased with you. Yeah. May the Lord find favor in how you are living because you are being faithful to his covenant. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives benedictions uh, to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's one particularly, I'd like you to pull it up for me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, that Alexander Campbell suggested recasts the ironic benediction with a Trinitarian formula. And I just thought this was so beautiful when I first saw it, and I'd like to share it uh, in our discussion today. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his countenance to shine upon you, and give you peace. May you receive God's empowerment, God's favor, and God's peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think that that's a powerful point, and uh, it demonstrates to us that as Christians, our greatest desire is not only that we would please God, but that 
our brothers and sisters would please God and that God's purposes would be accomplished in us and in the world through us. Beautiful. That is wonderful. It's a great connection to 2 Corinthians. And, uh, and I love that idea of God looking on us. And as he says, whenever he makes the covenants, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the, I think the idea is carried forward that God is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to be our God. He's not ashamed to look upon us and to see us and to be with us. And so that's a wonderful, uh, a tremendous promise that God has made for all those who are his covenant partners. Okay, we've got a few more chapters that we're going to quickly summarize, and then we've got one more thing that we really want to discuss here as we come to the end of our Sinai section of Numbers. Uh, so chapter 6, we've just concluded the priestly benediction. Chapter 7, the uh, leaders of Israel come and they bring special offerings and gifts and provisions to help the Levites in their new work. In chapter 8, we have an ordination ceremony, very much like Leviticus 8, where the priests are ordained for their sacred task. Now the, all the Levites are going to be ordained for their sacred task. And I might just add, we'll talk more about this when we get to later sections of the book, that just like with previous appointments, what we're going to see throughout the rest of Numbers are a series of failures by the people who were just ordained to do something for God. So Israel was elected and ordained in Exodus to be God's people, but then they rebel with the golden calf. The family of Aaron, they're ordained to be the priest. Then Nadab and Abihu sin and fall. And now the Levites are ordained to be the tabernacle workers. But then in the rest of the book, what do we see? Aaron and Miriam, who are Levites, they rebel. Uh, Korah leads one of the most famous Levitical rebellions against Moses and against Aaron in conjunction with a political rebellion instigated by some Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram. And hundreds of Levites are killed in that rebellion. And then even Moses himself is going to have his own fall narrative in Numbers when he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it to bring out water. And we'll talk more about that scene later. He's eventually going to be denied entrance into the promised land as a result of that. So the Levites are set apart by God. And you think just like we did with the appointment of the priests, everything looks great. Everything's wonderful. Everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. And then they're not. Uh, and sin uh, tarnishes that work and that relationship that they have with God. And then we come to chapter 9, and we have some final remarks in the Sinai section before they leave and begin their first sojourn. Uh, first, they keep the Passover. So that means it's been one year since the original Passover was kept in Egypt. Now we're keeping the Passover at Sinai. But then there's a concern in this passage uh, over what happens if someone is unclean or someone is on a journey when Passover arrives on the in the first month of the year. And Moses is going to have to figure out what to do about those persons. We'll come back to that in just a second. After that, there are some final preparations where God says, okay, I'm going to send the glory cloud. It's going to lead this march. And when the glory cloud comes up out of the tabernacle, you know it's time to pack up. It's time to go. The glory cloud leads the way. The tribe of Judah is first in line in the marching orders, and then all the successive tribes behind them, and they're going to march towards the direction following the glory cloud. In chapter 10, God says, 
for the people to make some trumpets, and the trumpets will be an auditory sign that it's time to pack up in March. They'll blast these trumpets, and then everyone will know, okay, it's time to pack up, load everything into our carts, grab the tabernacle furniture on the poles, and begin our march and our journey forward. So that brings the Sinai experience to a close. Now, the thing that Clint and I want to spend the last couple of minutes on, and this is just a discussion that I think that Christians need to be thinking about and embrace in uh, how we take certain passages from the Old Testament and not only read them and make observations about them and interpret how they would have applied to the ancient Israelites, but then also think through how they impact our own Christian living. And the passage in particular that we want to spend just a minute on is this passage in Numbers 9, where an, an allowance is made for people to keep the Passover even if they have become unclean, which as we talked about when we talked through Leviticus uh, 11 through 15, happens all the time just through normal exercises of life, or if they're journeying and they can't be where they need to be for Passover. There's a second Passover that's given a month later for people who have found themselves in this situation. Now, Clint, as we look at passages like this and maybe other similar texts in the Old Testament, and we think, okay, well, what are the ramifications of something like this? What are some questions that Christians need to be asking themselves as we're trying our best to learn from Torah as the apostles learn from Torah and wove the text of the Old Testament into their own teaching? Well, I'm glad we're talking about this at Shah and I've talked about this in private, and I, I agree this is a conversation that it will be healthy for us to have now here on The Search, and I want the, our listeners to think about it and to think about uh, how you would work through these issues. Several years ago, I had a lot of friends who walked away from what I understood to be uh, the closest expression of Christianity we could have in the modern world, or at least an effort at it, you know, trying to move in that direction. And they embraced something else, something that uh, didn't really care much about the particular teachings of the Bible, but seemed to be more nebulous and ethereal and just uh, uh, love God and do as you please kind of a theology. And I, I watched what caused people to make that change. And I had conversations with friends at the time. One of the things that I heard was people, people said, you know, I was taught growing up that the law of Christ replaced the law of Moses. And so when I had questions about what we should do in church or how we should live, I looked at the New Testament for an answer. And most of the time, I found no answer. I found that there was uh, no explanation as to how to handle a difficult situation. And so all we had was human traditions and human speculations and inferences that seemed to have very little basis in the scripture. And we were building this elaborate structure of, of human traditions, building hedges around the law like the Pharisees. And what I discovered ultimately was that the, the New Testament is not a law at all. It's just a love letter. And, and God doesn't really care about those things now the way he used to. 
And he doesn't expect us to worry and stress over those matters the way that Israel needed to. And so these people began to read their Bibles very differently and their whole religion changed. Well, I want to discourage us from that conclusion. I have not ever been convinced that that is the the right answer to the question. I think that the better answer is to ask how the Old Testament uh, can help us in those times. Instead of just thinking that the Old Testament was replaced with the New and therefore the Old Testament is irrelevant, that the best the Old Testament can do is paint an ugly picture of what used to be and thank God it isn't anymore. That's not the way that the early Christians thought. No, not at all. The early Christians weren't weren't struggling with, with that and the apostles weren't having to convince them to integrate the Old Testament into their lives. The apostles were having to convince them not to integrate it so much, <laughs> not to let it dominate them, yeah. but how to have a healthy relationship with them. Now, early on in our studies, we explored some of the different possibilities of what a healthy relationship with the Old Testament looks like. And the one that I suggested, uh, I think is, is right, uh, although I didn't always understand this, is what James E. Smith calls the pedagogical authority of the Old Testament. This would mean that the entire Old Testament, every part of it, even parts that we would least expect, plays the role of teaching us as Christians. It it teaches us about who God is and how we should think about him, but it even teaches us about how we should live and what we should do in our lives. And I think evidence for this is seen in apostolic teaching. One One of the most unlikely Old Testament passages to have anything to do with the Christian life is one from the book of Deuteronomy, about how to hook an ox up to a a mill. And you would think, well, this certainly wouldn't have any bearing on on Christians. And yet it's quoted twice by the Apostle Paul to teach why elders and evangelists should be supported by the church. He he doesn't just say, well, I'm an apostle and I say support preachers. I suppose he could have done that, but he doesn't. He says, you need to support the preachers because the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And this was not written for oxen. It was written for our sakes upon whom the, the ends of the ages have come and you know who have been given the ministry of the gospel and so forth. So the apostles teach us that you know, we don't have the Urim and the Thummim to go consult when a difficult question arises. We can't bring some man uh, before the Lord and say, what do we do with this guy? He, he didn't do something that God, that you said that he should do, or he didn't do it in the way that you said he should do it. And his, his excuse is he was sick or something like that. How do we handle this situation? The answer is not to just forget about the Bible and do whatever seems right. Mm. The answer is not to write a man-made manual for church practice. That's something Christians have done since the uh, very near post-apostolic times. And it's always tended to cause division and problems rather than any kind of blessing to the church. I would suggest the apostolic answer is look to the foundational revelations of God in the Old Testament and let those provide us with principles uh, that we can be confident are 
pleasing to God. And even though it was a different covenant and a different law, the apostles did not assume that God had fundamentally changed or that ethics had fundamentally changed and that those principles no longer had any bearing on us. Quite the opposite. They looked at those principles as having authority in instruction and teaching. We have to reason through it, of course. We've got to think about how uh, these principles would apply in a very different context, a different historical and cultural context, even under a different covenant, but they still play that important role. So, uh, you know, when people ask questions about what should I do when uh, I'm not able to eat the Lord's Supper because I was sick, how do you answer that question? Do you just make up a rule? Do you, do you look at the New Testament and say, well, God didn't say anything about it, so I guess he doesn't care? Mm. Or do we look at the Old Testament as a teaching source that might be able to help us answer that question? Now, as I say all this, I'm not really prepared to give an application based on this passage. But this is a great opportunity for us to remind ourselves that just reading over these statements and saying, well, that was Old Testament, let's just move on. Uh, that's not the apostolic way of reading the law of Moses. And there might be more contained in passages like this than we have previously considered. What I certainly would discourage is the, the uh, practice of dismissing the bits that you don't find agreeable and clinging to the bits that you do uh, with no real standard, just sort of arbitrarily. That's a very reckless and irresponsible way of reading the Scripture. And if that's how you live your life, your children will probably see the inconsistency and they'll probably say, oh, well, forget it. Who needs rules anyway? And wander off into something that none of us want to see anybody go into. Well, as um, Ron Corder, a, a preacher Clinton and I both respect, uh, says, when we're dealing with biblical principles, uh, we need to use biblical wisdom. And it's wisdom and conversations like these that help us as the people of God work through how to take a biblical principle from a very ancient time and culture and place and apply that today into the regular, everyday lives of Christians. So that's something that we wanted to raise in this conversation and to acknowledge that all of us as Christ's people will have to wrestle with these questions in our own lives and with one another so that we can search out true biblical meaning and application uh, for us today. So uh, Clint and I do not in any way ever profess to have all the answers to these questions, far from it, but they are things, conversations that we should be having, and we hope to have some of those conversations as we continue our own studies on this program. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, for your love is my delight.